The sermon text this morning is Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows um, favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Home is where the heart is. Uh, It's a a proverb, a very American proverb, saying that most of us have have heard um, probably as long as we can remember. I I looked it up because I know the, the intended meaning, but I looked it up and here's the common definition uh, your home will always be the place for which you feel the deepest affection, no matter where you are. Your home will, be, will always be the place for which you feel the deepest affection, no matter where you are. Poet Maya Angelou said, the ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are, not, as we are and not be questioned. Uh, you most keenly feel this sense of home, I think, when you move away from your home, from your roots. Even if you had a less than ideal uh, childhood, a less than ideal upbringing in your home, there's a familiarity about where you're from in the trees, in the landscape, in the sunset, in the uh, type of people that you're around. Uh, For many, when you're away, you can grow this fondness for home. But I think in reality, when we ever move away and we come back, uh, we either just misremembered or uh, we realize that it's actually like every other place. It's just some sense of nostalgia in us. And just like every other place in this world, We can be disappointed even in what feels most dear to us. Sometimes home in this world is not all that it's cracked up to be. For the Christian, it's kind of an absurd statement to say, I'm searching for my forever home or I've purchased my forever home. And I realize that some of you may have said that before. And I'm guessing you're not saying that the home you find, your earthly dwelling is going to be better than heaven. But just taking the words uh, 
on their surface value, their surface value, it's a bit nonsensical. Like for us, our home clearly isn't here. There's so much pain and turmoil, so much disorder and heartache. Certainly this is not our home. And the scripture makes it clear that our home is with the Lord. And one day, as we sing almost every Sunday, we will dwell forever with him and be fully in his presence. So Psalm 84 is a psalm that teaches us about the longings of our heart, where our home is. It's a psalm by the sons of Korah. It's not really in the the grouping um, that we've been doing the the first eight weeks of this series, Psalm 42 to 49. Um, But to to keep the series somewhat uh, (laughs) orderly and make sense of it, we went all the way to Psalm 84 and found the Psalm of the sons of Korah. So 84, 85, and then uh, uh, 87, 88 are attributed to the Psalms of the sons of Korah. But I do think this one helps make sense of, or at least it helps apply the things that we've been learning in what is really this, this psalm, uh, the series of Psalms where the psalmist starts out in a very low spot and eventually he's trusting in God and his character and God's ability to deliver him from death. Um, and so now we see this kind of really personal psalm in Psalm 84. It's fitting for us and it describes uh, the longing that we have at our core. So church, no matter your past or present experience or no matter your future, no matter your future hopes of home life, they will not fully satisfy the ultimate longing to happily dwell with God, to feel cherished, protected, at peace, and perfectly loved. In Psalm 84, we see that God is lovely beyond our imagination and he's good beyond our comprehension. We see that God is lovely beyond our imagination and he is good beyond our comprehension. And we're going to see this in three parts. If you listened as Casey was reading, uh, you saw that uh, the, there are three blessings and there are three selah. So each time uh, we hit a selah, that's going to be a new point. It's a break. Our first point is this. Home is where the heart wants to be. Home is where the heart wants to be. Let me read verses one to four again. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. The psalm here is describing a lived experience of the joy of God's dwelling place. So before before Christ came to the world 2,000 years ago, God's main dwelling place was the temple. And that's specifically what he's remembering here. Look at verse 2, the courts of the Lord. And then verse 3 He mentions altars. And in verse four, he mentions singing. Uh, His soul is panting for the presence of God in temple worship. He remembers the joys and the glories and the happiness he felt when he was with God, worshiping with God's people in the temple. Looking at the courts, the altars, the singing, the praise, the worship. 
God's presence with his people was not limited to the temple, but it was most clearly revealed and felt in the temple. It was especially felt in the temple. He's longing in his heart of hearts to dwell with God, to be in his presence, and therefore to experience the loveliness of God. You can see he's, he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And he's panting for it. His soul is longing for that again. He's fainting for it. He's not there right now, but he's been there. You see, church, this psalm is using a real experience of temple worship to point to a future reality of a permanent dwelling with God, which is ultimately what our hearts long for. As uh, Augustine said, Augustine of Hippo, uh, around the year 400, when his uh, confessions came out, he said, you have made us, speaking of God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. That's where my home is. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. See, home is most homey when it is restful, isn't it? Just think about your own experience, either current or past, or what you hope to make, the kind of home you hope to make. It's most pleasurable when it's restful. Home life is best when there's peace and kindness and love flourishing. Uh, the fruits of the Spirit are just abounding. That's when we can rest from adversity, rest from strife and discord, or from trying to be accepted or to prove yourself to people. You can be at home. Now, this is good and bad. Sometimes if you ever go back to your parents' home, it's like you're the, new, the old version of yourself all of a sudden is back. But you generally feel more at ease at home. I wonder how many of you look back at your home life or evaluate your, your home situation and think, I don't have that. I don't have that sense of joy and peace and rest. Maybe your home life is more characterized by turmoil, by yelling, by blow-ups, or maybe it's more of a cold anger, grudges, tension under the surface, cold silences. My friends, whether it's cold silences or, or hot explosions, uh, uh, that's not the home that we will have when we are forever with the Lord. And if that does describe one of your experiences, uh, let me just ask you a question. How might you be contributing to that situation? If you're a parent, how are you showing your children a meek and kind character? How can you grow in that? How can you cause your home to be a place of joy and peace of a blessed authority in your home. Parents, how are you guiding your children through life? They need authority. They need good authority. Parents, God's placed you in your home to be a small picture of what it's like to be under the good authority of a good God. And if you're a child in this room, how can you contribute to a more restful and peaceful home? Maybe you can ask your parents even after, after service today. Say, Mom, Dad, is there anything I can do to make this a more restful place for our whole family? I'm guessing your parents will have something to say to you. As an aside, if, if you've ever uh, 
If you're ever mistreated, either in the past or especially in the present, physically or in any other inappropriate ways in the home, please come talk to somebody. Come talk to one of the leadership in this church. Even in the best of dwelling places, even in the most picturesque home lives, those places will fall short of dwelling with the Lord in his house. That is what the psalmist is missing. Look at verse 3 as he describes his experience. Verse 3 says, The sparrows find a home, the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my God and my King. He's remembering these past experiences, and it seems like he's pulling from uh, these, this visual that he has, at least in his mind, and perhaps he saw them, of, of these nests being made where these two very common birds, a swallow and a sparrow, they come and they are at home in the courts of the Lord. But, and he's saying they found a home in God's temple, as it were. But I think he's actually in some ways complaining here or, or lamenting. Lord, they can find a home, but I can't. And here he personalizes it saying, oh, Lord of hosts, that is Lord of armies. And when that's used, that's God of anything. God can do whatever he wants. You see, that's four times in this psalm. God is powerful, the Lord of hosts and armies. And then he says, my king, my God, Lord, you are lovely. I love your dwelling place. Dwelling with you is the epitome of joy that makes my heart sing praises to you. And Lord, I know that glorifies you. But I'm far from there and I want to be there. Lord, if the sparrows and the swallows can be at rest in your dwelling place, why am I still longing for your courts? Just picture him in the temple or remembering his time in the temple, looking around and, and now he's remembering the sparrows and the swallows maybe in the outer walls of the temple, or I guess it's near the altars, feeding their young, making their homes, being at rest. Meanwhile, if you fast forward to verse six, he says he's in a place called the Valley of Baca, which means the Valley of Sorrows or the Valley of Tears. Lord, aren't I more valuable than a sparrow? And yet the sparrow seems at ease, flying about, feeding their young. Of all the parts of the temple, his mind, though, goes to the altar. At the altar is where sacrifices are made. He could have mentioned many things when he's looking back to the time of the temple. But he goes to the altar. It's where sacrifices were made, and, and the most important sacrifice to the health of Israel, to God's people, was the burnt offering. And the burnt offering, uh, it was so important because it turned God's wrath away from his people. At the altar, the priest would receive bulls and goats, sheep, pigeons, or turtle doves, depending on how much money you had to purchase an animal. It was a sacrifice to them because they're giving up something that is costly, which is meat. And everything was given to the Lord. Leviticus 1 verses 4 and 5 says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. 
then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. It's, it's interesting, right? Like, I don't know if you ever noticed that, but the one who brings it is, is supposed to touch it. Saying, I, I, I'm part of this. I'm giving this to you. It's another picture of what the Lord is really trying to do is get at the human heart with the sacrificial system. The drama of the burnt offering of killing a pricey animal is supposed to draw the heart to the wretchedness of sin and the guilt in their own heart. And then to rejoice that God's wrath is turned away because of his steadfast love and his promises. For God's goodness to be upheld, he cannot merely let sin go unpunished. He would be a bad judge. And that goes against the very character of God. The psalmist is remembering the altar because something very important happened at the altar. You see, there were many priests and many sacrifices. And at the altar in the temple, God's mercy toward an undeserved people stood out. This is kind of the the epicenter of the life of Israel. Is at the altar where the burnt offerings would take place. But church, that altar and that sacrificial system were copies of the true thing. They were shadows pointing to the priesthood of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christ is our priest. He holds the priesthood permanently because, as Hebrews says, his office continues forever. Hebrews 7 says that because he always holds his priestly office, he is able to save to the uttermost anyone of those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus. Because he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, how is Jesus able to save as a priest? What about God's wrath? What about the costly sacrifice? How is Jesus only able to be the priest. Well, he was a priest and he was a sacrifice. Hebrews 7, 26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Church, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is the priest and he is the sacrifice. So if The psalmist can go back before Jesus came and look at what happened at the altar. How much more we, the new Israel, the church of God, can look back on the gospel of Jesus Christ at the cross, the epicenter of our faith, Christ crucified for sinners like you and me. Church, that's the bedrock. That's the foundation. If you are here and and you're new to this idea of Christianity, or maybe you've never understood that Jesus became the priest, the intercessor between us and the holy God, and Jesus became the sacrifice, the one who is innocent, guiltless, holy, sacrificed, crucified on a cross. Uh, That's the good news. See, none of us, if we made a sacrifice, it wouldn't count because we come and we bring our sin. (laughs) But Jesus comes unworthy of such a death, yet he offers off himself freely for you and I. 
and yet it cost him his life. That is the good news. If you are here and you are not a Christian, let me encourage you to put your trust in his work on the cross and not in your own feeble attempts to appease a God who is holy and righteous and good. And because he's good, he does not let sin go unpunished. I mean that earlier when I said he would be a bad judge. He really would. Just think about the atrocities that you read about in the news this week or maybe horrible things that have happened to you or maybe horrible things you've done to other people. What kind of good judge would just let those go? Now, God is good. And because he's good, he hates sin and he will punish it. And the good news is he's done that on his own son. None of us deserve this gift. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we are, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, priest and sacrifice. And the psalmist is longing for the courts of the Lord. And especially he's remembering the altar. His presence is what we long for church. We want to be home because home is meant to be a place of comfort, protection, joy, peace, and love that is only found in God and only accessed through the sacrifice of Christ. And brothers, when we are home with the Lord forever, there will still be the lamb who was slain. You've ever seen that in Revelation? He still has the wounds. We can still see it. So this is worthy to be celebrated, enjoyed, understood more and more now and forevermore. God wants to dwell with his people. He did in the Garden of Eden. And then he provided the Ark of the Covenant after the fall. And then the temple and then the other temple. And then he provided Jesus who came to dwell among us. And then he gives us individually his spirit. So God dwells with us. And then in a particular way, he comes and he dwells with us when we gather in his name on the Lord's day when he rose from the dead. You see what's going on in the Bible? God wants to dwell with his people. And he dwells with them through the, inter, through the mediation of Jesus Christ, our priest and our sacrifice. And it's a good place to be. That's when you can sing for praise, Right? Don't all the best songs we sing have something to do with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? That's kind of when we sing the loudest. I don't know if you've noticed that. But in the, in the rest of the song, we see this uh, immense goodness on his way home. He offers, uh, we see that God is the one who offers us strength to get home. That's our second point. The strength to get home. In verses 5 to 8, here's... The second blessing of the psalm, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Uh, as we've seen in Psalm 42 to 49, Zion is the city of God or the dwelling place of God. Sometimes uh, it's spiritual Jerusalem um, or the new Jerusalem, as Revelation says. Uh, another reference to the place where God dwells. There's now a greater clarity that he's speaking like he's on a pilgrimage though, because he's not there. He's sojourning because he's on a highway going through the valley of Baca, the valley of tears or sorrow. Notice the wording. As they go through the valley of sorrows, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. It's, it's a deserty place. It's not a place where you would set up your tents and want to dwell for a long time. Those who have their strength in the Lord made it a place that gives life. Do you see that there? 
Who's the one that makes it a place that gives life and spring? And it's those who have their strength in the Lord. So those who have the strength in the Lord are, are going through this valley. And when you're in the valley, you're at a vulnerable spot from the enemies, right? If an archer wants to shoot you, he's, he's going to perch up on the mountains somewhere and fire at you. If you're going to be attacked, they're going to come from the top of the mountain down. Insert Lord of the Rings reference somewhere. Um, then, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, there's been lots of Lord of the Rings references, and they're really good. And if I was better, I would have mentioned one there. Um, but, but you're at a vulnerable place in your valley, and this valley is particularly dry, and it's named Valley of Baca, a valley of sorrows and tears. And he says that uh, in verse 6, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. So the psalmist is saying that those on their trek to Zion, to the temple, to the courts, they're going through there, and yet they're not completely dilapidated. In fact, they're, they're, they're making you know, lemonade out of lemons, if you will. There's something going on here that they're able to be not completely disheartened, but they're actually able to enjoy it. Life is like that, though. We are tempted so many times to despair. And sometimes we feel despair. And that's okay as a Christian. Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Christian, sometimes we despair of life itself and we align here with the apostles. But we need strength to carry on. And so if Christ has become our sacrifice, we've been gifted then with and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then you see in the epistles, especially for Ephesians, you see um, this prayer that we might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. And then in Ephesians 6.10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You see, the Lord doesn't sit over us kind of wagging his finger when we feel despair. He's calling us. He's arming us for, armoring us for the battle that we might have strength to carry on. He's a good God, a good father, king, who provides strength for his people when we're weak. So how do we be strong in the Lord? Uh, just two very simple ways. One is to know God's word. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. When we're in the valley of tears and sorrow, meditate on God's word. Read it, reread it, pray it, ask the Lord to give, it, give you light. It might not always feel like you're eating a Thanksgiving meal. But something's better and nothing. And in that, God will anchor your soul. And the secondly is pray. Pray for it to be strengthened. All throughout the epistles, Paul is saying to the churches, the mighty apostle Paul, pray for me that I might be strengthened so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. That's 2 Timothy. You know, Hebrews 12, 12, therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. How are you strengthened? Through relying on 
God through prayer. God strengthens his people. Church, John Bunyan said, prayer will cause a man to cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Let me read that again. Prayer will cause a man to cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Sin has, uh, sin has a lot of tricks it plays in us. So let's say we sin. Immediately, we feel some sort of guilt if we're in Christ. Some, that's not holy. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And so we, we feel some kind of like, yeah, that wasn't right. So often, my first reaction is to just create a little more distance between me and God. Because surely he's not going to accept me. But after some time, I'll come back to him and then I'll be clean again, right? I'm sure many of you do the same thing. But, but what does that do? That often just lays a playing field for more sin. For some self-sufficiency, some self-reliance. And then when we are no longer tempted or we've overcome the sin, we get the glory and not the Lord. But that's not what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to come to him to remember the perpetual ongoing sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is sufficient for us. Plead the blood of Jesus when you sin or even when you're tempted to sin. Remind yourself of the gospel. Preach it to yourself. The good news. Friends, let this be a church where we strengthen one another by praying for one another and by reading God's word. I'm so encouraged that often after our gatherings on Sunday mornings, you see people praying for each other. Because we are needy people, aren't we? We need to be strengthened. And we can be strengthened through the word and through prayer. Let's continue that practice. When someone, even after this, they tell you some kind of burden, or some kind of hardship in some way, pray for them right then and there. Strive to make that more and more normal part of your life. Well, lastly, we see that God provides protection to get home. He provides the protection to get home. Let's read nine, look at nine and 12 again, nine through 12. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. God protects us on the way home on the way to dwell with him forever. He has a shield around us. Look at verses 9 and 11. The word shield is used there twice. The imagery is of a man walking through this dry valley that apart from the Lord, it would undo him. And there's a shield hovering over him, protecting him from the elements. The sun now is used to bless him and guide him, provide him warmth, but it's not going to scorch him to the ground. And then it's almost like there's this force field around him with a shield. The, the jackals and the lions, they can't attack him because he's protected. Nothing will stop him from getting home. Because who has the shield? Who holds it? Not him, but the Lord. The Lord is the one protecting him. He has a divine force field that is impenetrable from anything that will stop him from getting home. 
And yet home is still his North star. He's going to get there and God's going to lead him there and protect him there and strengthen him on the way. And then verse 10, he still has that understanding in front of him for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. It's so good to dwell with you, Lord, to be in your presence. It's better than a thousand days elsewhere. When you think about your dream vacation, what do you think of? What if you think, actually, let's do this. I'm a little interactive. Name it. What is dream vacation? A cruise. Caribbean or like Alaskan or Norwegian? Europe. Okay. What else? Dream vacation. Quiet mountain cabin. One more. Japan. Okay. So take all those, take the Caribbean, take the Swiss Alps, uh, take um, uh, the Florida Keys. You know, you're there, you're being served, you're spending new food, you're getting your choice beverage with wisdom, <laughs> and you're being served. I always want to go to one of those little huts in, over the water in the Pacific Rim. Those look awesome, and they keep popping up. I must have said that out loud because they keep popping up with my phone. <laughs> Whatever it might, maybe it's Disney World. You see the joy of your kids explode while you sweat in hot, long lines. <laughs> we all have our ideal vacation in mind. Better than a thousand days is your uh, in your dream place is just one day dwelling in the courts of the Lord. You see the poetry, how it's pointing to something so much better than we can imagine. And this all is logical. It makes sense because God is the one who created all of those little blessings, all those places. So how can something be more enjoyable than his own dwelling place? He would never create something that's more enjoyable than his own presence. Those are all pointers to how good it will be to be with him. Even in your most spirit-filled church service, or even in the time you became saved, how much joy you had there, it'll be so much, even better than that, it will be to be in the Lord's dwelling forever. Look at verse 11 again. This is a tough one. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I remember this verse when I was being discipled in college and I kind of had this mentality that if I walk in righteousness, he will bless me with more joy in him. It wasn't a prosperity mindset as much as a, a quid pro quo idea of blessing. So if I'm faithful and obedient, I will receive blessings. And I meant spiritual blessings, spiritual blessings from God, which meant rejoicing and freely rejoicing with him. Uh, the same wording is used uh, in Psalm 34.10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good things. And in more negatively, it's used in Jeremiah 5.25. Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you. So Jeremiah, it is saying your sin, you've made bad choices against a holy God and therefore God has kept good from you. So what's going on here? Is it a declared righteousness and therefore, no matter what, because I'm upright, declared righteous in God, no bad thing, no good thing will be withheld from me? Or is it more um, in a, a spiritual sense that if I obey God and trust in him, no good thing will be withheld from me? Well, I, I, it's kind of a both and. 
If you are in Christ, in the end, all things, and we'll see in the end, and presently, present reality, all things work to the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. But there is a truism a bit that if you trust the Lord, you will more and more experience and taste his goodness. But I want to focus in on the aspect of no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly because sometimes we walk uprightly and our lives get messy and hard and difficult. So what does this mean for the Christian? Well, we know that he protects us. We know that he loves us. We know he's bringing us home. But sometimes if you take that shield analogy and you're walking through the valley, sometimes it feels like something's getting in the shield. I meant to look this up, but it's like that Harry Potter when they're on the brooms and they play that game, the little widget ball that has wings. Come on. Quidditch. Quidditch. What's the ball though? Snitch. Snitch. Did I say that? It's like that thing, all of a sudden, God has a shield and that thing just sneaks around and finds its way in our lives and our lives get really difficult and hard. And then we have to ask ourselves a question. We have to, Christian. Did I cause this? Is this because of my disobedience? Well, sometimes we make a mess of our lives. But I think the heart of this psalm is not that. I think he's saying that even in the hard, difficult things, even when that little ball with the wings comes in the shield, God is still working for our good. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The psalmist is saying, I'm walking uprightly, and yet he's in a valley of tears and a valley of sorrows, and yet the Lord is still working for his good. Brother and sister, do you believe that God is working for your good even in what is so difficult for you? Or do you just believe it in part? Believe it more fully. Throw your whole being upon the goodness, the loveliness of God. And if you doubt that, think about Christ crucified. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Jesus was killed for his obedience. Yet for the, the joy set before him and the subsequent glories, he endured the cross. God is for you, not against you, Christian. Sometimes it feels like he can be against you, but he's not. He's working for your long-term good, your long-term joy. He bestows favor and honor, or another way to say that in verse 11, grace and glory. Sometimes walking uprightly costs you. Maybe you've been maligned at work for doing what is upright. Maybe a boss shows favor to your coworkers despite their unrighteous deeds. Maybe you're in high school and you try hard not to gossip and try hard not to laugh at unrighteous jokes. And you're, maybe you're labeled not fun or you're ostracized or not invited to things. Even in then, Christian, God has not withheld good from you. He works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. God is lovely and he is good to you. The psalmist is not scared of God. He does not think God must be disappointed with me. He's not thinking God's annoyed with me. He's happy toward you, Christian. God delights in you because you are covered with, right, with, with righteousness because of Christ. Because of the sacrifice of Christ who was fully righteous and now Christ, in Christ you are clothed with robes of righteousness and can boldly approach the Father 
and he looks at you like he looks at Christ. We receive a father whose presence we're not a bother to. We're not annoying to God. He doesn't fly off the handle toward us. He doesn't just mildly care what we have to say. But what does 1 Peter say? Cast all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. You can empty out all the things upon God because he's a good father and you can be at home with him now and forevermore. I'll give you a little primer for next week's sermon where Tom will give a biography of Elizabeth Elliot. She said this, I am convinced that there's nothing that can happen to me in this life which is not precisely designed by a sovereign Lord to give me the opportunity to learn and to know him. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of, knowledge of God. In conclusion, Billy Graham said, my home is in heaven. I'm just traveling throughout this world. That's our journey. Even take Billy Graham's really awesome place in Asheville, North Carolina. You know, that place does not compare to the home that he's experiencing now. Let me close with this. In Revelation 21, the John is looking around and there's, there's, there's no temple. And he says this in 21:22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You catch that? No more temple. It's the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. There's radiant Shekinah glory coming from the lamb himself. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring it into it, the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life. I have my sermon wrapped up here, but I'm reading this and I can't help but think of how evangelistic this text is. Brothers and sisters, this week, give thanks to God that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life and go tell someone about this good news that they can too dwell in this home that their hearts long for. Next week, we're gonna hear about um, some mission trips and mission ventures and get a report on uh, uh, some of our people that went to the Middle East back in June. Let that encourage you in the good work that's going on in this church and let that inspire you to get involved more and more. Let's pray. Lord, it really does feel like we're in many ways just fumbling through this life. So many of us can look back in times of our lives where we've been in the valley of tears and sorrow. Some of us are there now. Some of us are afraid <laughs> that we're going to get there again. But Lord, you are a shield about us. You protect us and you guide us. You are a son to us. You provide for our every need. And even if our lives should be taken from us, we will be with you forever in glory. Oh Lord, embolden us. Encourage us. Let us look forward, O oh Lord, by the power of your spirit to the day when we will be with you in Zion forevermore, looking upon the radiant Lamb of glory. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.